Religio Politics is produced by the International Policy Institute at the University of Washington's Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, which is made possible in part by a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The statements made and views expressed are solely the responsibility of the author. This is Religio Politics, and I'm Randy Thompson. This week, we're examining religion and politics in India, where Prime Minister Narendra Modi enjoys overwhelming support. In the name of Hindutva, or Hinduness, Modi's government has criminalized cow slaughter, but also looked the other way when protection of mother cow has led to mob violence. The same philosophy lies behind the August 2019 occupation of Kashmir, which has long held a special place in the hearts of Hindu nationalists. Joining me to explain the origins of Hindutva, its role in the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi, and how Modi rode this philosophy to power, is Dr. Anand Yang, Professor of History and International Studies at the University of Washington. Before we get started, if you'd like some statistics and maps of the religious demographics of India, please visit our website, jsis.washington.edu slash religiopolitics. Well, uh, thank you uh, for joining me, Dr. Young. Thanks for inviting me to do this. The current operation in Kashmir is massively popular among the Indian uh, population. It's led by Prime Minister Modi, uh, who was victorious overwhelmingly in last April's elections to reinforce the BJP's majority. Yeah. Modi's main idea is Hindutva. So I would like you to just speak about that term, what it means, uh, when this idea emerged in India, and you know, just provide people some background on something that's often thrown around, but doesn't necessarily have a lot of content given to it. Yeah, Hindutva is in some ways larger than uh, Hinduism because it's a notion of Hinduness. And I think it's deliberate that that's the definition. And it's a, it's a term that really was first coined in the early 20th century. And the purpose behind having this broader concept is that if you live in a certain territory, you're part of this Hindutva, regardless of what religion you are. It's the idea of... Uh, India being a place that is that everyone is Hindu, even if you're Christian or Muslim or Jain or Sikh, you all speak Hindi. So kind of a, uh, a slogan that goes along with Hindutva is Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan. Hindustan uh, meaning all of India. So the idea is this Hinduness applies to everyone. And so that's why, like somebody like Ambedkar, who's a Dalit, right, who converted to yes. Buddhism, could still be claimed as a Hindu. You still partake in this identity, in this ideal that uh, encompasses everyone, and in some ways it trumps your other kinds of identities. What would those other identities be? You know, I think people in India have always had multiple identities defined by language, defined by religion, defined by caste, defined by gender. You know, in, in many ways, people say um, India is the most diverse country in the world where everybody, to some extent or another, is a minority because each and every person 
has so many identities that in one of those identities, you really are minority. And so in the 1920s, that this idea of a, Hin, like a Hindustan uh, emerged. Because Hindustan back then had a narrow kind of definition and meant primarily the Hindi-speaking part of North India. Although the, the Hindutva term dates back to 1923, it was sidelined right after independence for several decades and uh, in many ways repudiated by the fact that the father of the nation's uh, Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated by someone who very much subscribed to this Hindutva kind of idea and felt that Gandhi's kind of Hinduism uh, really was a sellout to the Muslims, that it compromised um, India to a great extent. So secularism was, for to these people, always tainted because it was really designed to protect the mi minority Muslim community. So was he viewed as someone acting independently or is it acknowledged that this went farther up? I think the conspiracy was never proven. I mean, they were acquitted, correct? The leadership yes. was tried yes. and acquitted. Yep, yep. And most people accept that as legitimate. Yeah, he, I, I don't, you know, he, he may have, God say, was a lone wolf operating with a few other individuals, but he was not acting on behest of Savarkar and other leaders. What is their view of the proper relations between Hindus and Muslims? At partition, are they saying that they should rule the Muslim-majority regions, uh, like Kashmir? Yes, I think they, they believe that uh, undivided India was the boundaries of Hindutva. All of British India. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. But of course, um, now at present, because they know that it's not possible short of having World War III, of regaining those territories, that what they're really talking about is post-1947 India. So that's why Kashmir is so important. This is the one place where they were successful in getting a Muslim-majority state into uh, India from one of these territories that was going to be partitioned off. Yeah, and so uh, under, under leaders that believed in a secular India, under Nehru, uh, he made sure that there was... Uh, such an item in the constitution that protected Kashmir. A lot of the policies of the Congress were in close collaboration with the All India Muslim League. Mm -hmm. So they, in some ways, didn't like any of that. Overall, they opposed the terms on which India gained independence. Yes, on because they, they were, which is why God say murders Gandhi. Wow. So this enmity between Congress and the BJP really couldn't be any deeper. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. To the point where even as they celebrate Gandhi as the father of India, they are now creating monuments to God's sake. Right now. Right now. He's been heroized. He's uh, sainted. He's, yes. Because he, he stood up for Hindutva. Uh, the, so I want to return briefly to this idea of uh, like how secularism played into this dynamic post-independence and how the, the, and just the nature of what 
secularism means in India, which I think is very, it's very different than what we have in the United States. And I think that's really, really important to underline that India's secularism means uh, a certain kind of equidistance, which is a phrase a lot of scholars use with all the religions in India. So it's not separation of church and state, but maintaining and accepting the presence of all the different religions. But even as you say that from the very beginning, written into the constitution was certain kinds of protections towards different religious communities. One is considering the cow sacred, right? So being very careful about cow slaughter. Second is um, allowing Muslims to, uh, to live under Muslim law that determines, say, questions of divorce. So at uh, independence, then, the presence of this protected Muslim minority. It's a continuation of that kind of sentiment, which led to the assassination of Gandhi. Right. And the kind of exile of Hindutva to the mm -hmm. political mm -hmm. nether regions for quite a long time. It's really in the last few decades that the term has surfaced and gained any kind of following. I'll just read you their electoral performance after 1989, when for the first time they win you know, a substantial number of seats, 85. Then in 91, they win 120. 96, they win 161. And in 98, they actually take power, right? So in a decade, they resurge really to the center of Indian politics. What changed during this decade that allowed them to do that? Yeah, I think it's um, tightening of religious identities because um, the ruling party, Congress, uses it extensively as well. So uh, all people often begin with Indra Gandhi's use of, this is the other term along with secularism, Hindutva, that's really important in the Indian context, communalism. So uh, Indira Gandhi really uses communal identities to fight against the ruling Sikh party in Punjab. And she turns to young radical Sikhs to help topple the Sikh dominated government that was opposed to Congress in Punjab. And so she does this in the 1980s. And that's Operation Blue Star. and Yes, which leads to, because what she doesn't realize is these young kids she turns to, to help fight against the Sikh establishment, uh, ends up championing independence from India and the creation of a separate Sikh state known as Khalistan. And that's what leads to... Invasion. Operation Blue Star, the attack on uh, the Golden Temple, sort of like attacking the Vatican if you're a Catholic. Uh, and that leads to uh, her Sikh bodyguards assassinating her. So already before the right-wing Hindu party emerges and gains ground, Congress uses religious identities to mobilize people on its behalf. And again, totally bites it. It snaps back on that. Yes. Congress yes. almost immediately. Yep. 
Yeah, and and you could say, you know, one of the reasons why Gandhi is so successful and takes an elite nationalist movement and turns it into a mass movement around 1920 has a lot to do with his ability to mobilize religious identity and to speak in the vocabulary of uh, the common people who understood the religious imagery he used. I mean, he, he was... Hindu through and through, but he was a Hindu who believed in tolerance, which many people argue is actually very much part and parcel of uh, being a Hindu. Because unlike, unlike say, Abrahamic religions, there's, there's no central authority, there's no central tax, there's no uh, uh, set of priests that discipline, control, direct how one is as a Hindu. The idea you could be exclusive about that makes very little sense. Yeah. It was, it was an anti-Muslim project. Okay. And in order to be anti-Muslim, you had to define you had something. To underline your own religious right. identity. So it's just like India defines itself as a secular state in relation to the theocratic state that Pakistan becomes. So one thing that I want to talk about, I think a topic we haven't addressed yet, is the maintenance of holy sites and shrines by the government. Yeah, and, and part of talking about the maintenance of religious sites, of course, has to do with the long and complex history and the numbers of layers that are piled on top of uh, what came before, both in terms, uh, both architecturally uh, as well as uh, in historical terms, right? In terms of waves of people, waves of religions, mm -hmm. uh, waves of of people coming from the outside and making India their home. Mm -hmm. So the notion that there's some space in which a monument is not sitting on top of something that was before them is absurd. It's always going to be on top of something. It's always on top of something. And uh, Hindu temples have been built on top of Muslim sites. Muslim sites have been built on top of Hindu sites. Muslim sites have been built on top of other Muslim sites. The idea of uh, conquerors, rulers, not saying, you know, you shall build my mosque, you shall build my temple here, and destroying what existed before because it belonged to a previous ruler. Hindu rulers did that to other Hindu rulers. Muslim rulers did that to fellow Muslim rulers and to one another across religious lines. And one example of this, which becomes really the center of uh, our story because it's so important for Modi and his rise, is the Babri... Babri Mosque. Okay. Babri Masjid, which just means mosque. Okay. So it's something Nehru was aware of, and he knew that... The local government, which at that point was not dominated by Congress, was trying to use as uh, a political pawn to, to um, expand their popularity. So what Nehru did was ask them to shut it down. And uh, they didn't follow his orders completely. All they did was lock it up and not uh, allow anyone to use it. And why would he do that? Uh, because he didn't want uh, to incite, you know, this is right after partition where there's been all this bloodshed and there's been tremendous riots and when Hindu, Hindus and Muslims have massacred one another. So he didn't want to stoke any sort of communal fires. And he's, so his, his preference was to push that to the side 
and not have it become an issue by locking it up, not allowing anyone to bring in Hindu icons and putting it inside a mosque. Because that, of course, was a surefire way of getting Hindus and Muslims to go at each other's throat, as, as would often happen. And why this, why this site in particular of all the sites where this has been done? Because this is the, um, this is the home turf of India's most beloved god, Ram. Ayodhya is his, his kingdom. And why is he the most beloved? Because he's the hero of the great epic, one of India's two great epics, uh, the Ramayan. So okay. Ramayan is the story of Ram and his brother uh, Lakshman and his wife Sita and each one of them exemplifies is the perfect model of what you know a husband should be a god should be a prince should be a king should be and likewise his brother is the perfect brother and Sita is the ideal of what an Indian woman should be like. And all of this takes place in Ayodhya? Ayodhya, this, yes. This region of India? Yes. Okay. Yes. And where, where in India is it just situated? Okay. It's in North India. So it's in okay. uh, the present day state, this vast, huge state of Uttar Pradesh. Which is kind of the Hindu heartland then? I guess which is the say. Hindu heartland. Yeah. It's a state that has a population of over 200 million people. So larger than most countries of the world, except a, hand, a small handful. Wow. And that's where... Well, we'll get there, but that's where one of Modi's main deputies just won yes. an election, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. And so around the same time, the BJP is undergoing its political rise. There's a event at this mosque that kind of becomes a turning point for the future of the Hindutva movement. Yes. The leader that preceded Modi, a man named Advani, urges his followers to rush on this mosque and tear it apart brick by brick with their hands. And that's exactly what they start to do. And then riots break out all over India. It's a flashpoint for, yes, yes. The, for a mass wave of essentially pogroms of yes. one side against the other all over that's India. Right. Yeah, yeah. What kind of scale are we talking about? Uh, I think probably... A few thousand people killed. Okay. And of course, huge loss of property, um, driving out of um, people from, you know, their home villages and home areas. Mm. Then later, after the mosque has been literally uh, disassembled piece by yes. piece and these riots have uh, passed another decade later, right, in 2002, now there's Hindu pilgrims going right. there a decade yeah. later. And yeah. they're going back to... Gujarat on a Gujarat. train. Yeah, and their train is attacked. And so in 2002, uh, in retaliation for certain passenger cars in which Hindu pilgrims were returning to Western India and were allegedly burnt by uh, Muslims that targeted them, who believed that these Hindu pilgrims had desecrated Muslim shrines, uh, there is an outbreak of violence directed towards Muslim communities in the Western Indian state of Gujarat at a time when Modi was the chief minister of the state. And we know that the apparatus of the state, namely the police and local administrators, helped rioters 
target Muslim establishments and drive the Muslim community out of large numbers of places where they had lived for decades and even centuries. In the process, cement Modi in power for the next 13 years. Yeah. So if people like Gandhi and Nehru are seen as weak, and this is a familiar scenario, right? Couldn't, didn't stand up to the evil Muslims, you now have Hindus taking charge again, right? right? So these Hindu leaders are different in that they are seen as strong. And one of the things Modi often boasts about is his chest size. Literally, his... His girth, yes. Yeah. That he, he's a big guy. He's not very tall, though, right? He's not very tall. Okay, no. so you got to go horizontal. That's a pretty good you move. Got, he's a very smart man. You got to go width. Or width, yeah, yeah. Uh, circumference, I guess, really, right? Yes. Uh, as a chief minister, is his whole rule composed of you know, anti-Muslim violence and so this kind of stuff? Or does he have some positive accomplishments? I think the positive accomplishment is uh, Gujarat was one of the most su successful state economies in India at a time when growth was really slow. Right. Uh, growth was what used to be derisively called Hindu rates of growth. So less than 2% per annum uh, during Nehru's entire administration. What's, what does this growth consist in? Is it infrastructure projects? Is it Infra yeah, infrastructure prog projects, uh, better agricultural economy. And Gujarat has a much longer history of success, not only agriculturally, but in trade and commerce, because its diaspora extends not only all the way across Africa, but to other parts of the world. So Gujaratis are some of the most successful people in the United States, for instance, whether it's California, whether it's Mississippi. And Many of the motels and hotels and things like that are owned by people who are from Gujarat. And that's why the diaspora, in, at least in the United States, is pretty supportive of Modi. Yes. Yeah. So this is why, howdy Modi, you know? Right. Because, I was going to try to end with that, but I guess we got to it early. <laughs> no, no, because, of course, uh, Houston is one of the centers of where the large Indian diaspora is. So this is really what Modi rides to success um, in the national elections in 2014 when the BJP wins the first non-Congress majority in Indian history. That's right. That's and right. he's running on a campaign that's not Hindutva as much as, hey, look what I did uh, in my in Gujarat. This model is what I'm going to apply to the rest of the country. Uh, which, what does he emphasize here? He emphasizes development. Okay. And it's, it's a word he uses over and over again. From his lips, you never hear any communal or explicitly anti-Muslim sentiment. Mm -hmm. But the echelon below him, of course, use that uh, Hinduness kind of ide identity at the state level, at the province level, all over India. And then all the way down to the local. Yes. He himself did not mouth anti-Muslim rhetoric too loudly, although I think the way he talks about certain things, it's, it's code language for what, what the rest of the leadership is saying. But the leadership below him used it very effectively. And at the local level, of course, they, they used it to a great extent to rally the majority community. 
What are some of his main, what are the names of some of his main deputies? The most notable kind of leader below him is a guy named Amit Shah, A-M-I-T-S-H-A-H. And Amit Shah has been uh, quite explicit about um, what I think are the true ambitions and aims of the BJP. So it's Amit Shah who talks about um, uh, withdrawing Article 370, which, which gave certain amount of autonomy and certain kind of protection to Kashmir. If somebody was interested in really knowing what the direction of the party was, they wouldn't listen to Modi. They would listen to Shah. Yeah, they, well, Modi is the public face of BJP, not only for India, but the world. Very sophisticated uh, political machine. Yeah, he's, he maintain, he's very careful about cultivating a certain kind of identity. So for instance, he, he uh, swads himself uh, in beautiful clothes so that it can cover his massive chest. But the identity he plays up is, here's a guy who was once married but never consummated the marriage. So he's kind of like the, the religious leader who, you know, through abstention, uh, enhances his spiritual power he's and that is his political identity is yes. a spiritual man he's a spiritual man he meditates he, he goes he takes pilgrimage pilgrimages up to the um some of india hindu hinduism's most sacred sites up in the in the himalayas he takes lessons or he listens to godmen for their advice but then He's ready to shake hands and embrace uh, President Trump on the international stage. In power after 2014, this is his role is doing these, I mean, it's kind of public relations, uh, really. But what does the actual uh, government of Hindutva look like in practice? Popular campaigns that, um, that won him a won him a lot of support, you know, cleaning up India. And so he had this campaign where he himself picked up the broom and swept, uh, a, swept a certain piece of ground. Uh, symbolically, that is quite meaningful because that's a job usually done by untouchables. And even his toileting public sanitation campaign. Which won him the Gates Award, right? Gates Award here in Seattle. He, he is uh, creating something that is... Uh, that, that India has sort of a crying need for. You know, a huge chunk of its population does not have access to toilets or potable water. What other initiatives has the BJP government undertaken? I think their big goal is, and a very difficult one to attain for very obvious reasons, is to develop manufacturing. India wants to be a powerful manufacturing country because as, as it has realized, uh, software can only get you so far because it doesn't employ huge numbers of people and you're competing with other parts of the world that are equally well-developed in kind of uh, uh, sort of the, the, that, that kind of economy. Okay, so they really have been focused, though, overall, you'd say, on uh, economic development. So there's one uh, policy initiative that the that Modi undertakes is the cow protection laws. 
Well, the Constitution never banned cow slaughter completely because it can't because it has a large Muslim population. And it's not just Muslims who eat beef, plenty of Hindus eat it. And among uh, certain, certain Hindu communities, uh, including at the upper caste level, there were always people who ate beef. Uh, Dalits and others, of course, always ate beef along with Muslims. Furthermore, India has the largest number of cattle in the world. It is one of the world's greatest centers for leather. This cow slaughter has huge economic implications. So how much of that has been then at the national level that they have implemented bans on cow slaughter or restrictions on it? Or how much of it has been state by state? Yeah. And what Nehru did was Nehru left it up to states. He okay. never instituted an all India ban, but encouraged states to work with their local populations in sort of being as humane as possible and protecting the cow as best as they could. That's always been there. You know, be good towards the cow. But still, we're going to use the cow for the leather and the meat yes. that it provides. Obviously, something's happening, right? right. You're not right. just waiting till the cow dies. Yeah. But certain states, of course, openly flaunt it because in a state like the southwestern state of Kerala, that is uh, dominated by Muslims and Christians, as well as a Hindu population, uh, beef eating is uh, done publicly. But it is banned now on the national level? The government has tried to ban it, yes. But, has not, uh, but it's not being implemented everywhere. No, it's not being implemented everywhere, but it has led to uh, frequently to acts of violence because a Muslim scene walking with a cow towards the marketplace or head, heading home with it is often intercepted and beaten up or even killed. Is there, so which, I, I imagine then that the regions that where this is most pronounced, right, the, the bands are, this, are enforced most strongly are in that uh, Hindu India, homeland. North India, particularly North India. But it's also happened in other parts of India. Okay. Uh, let's see. In, let's talk just a little bit about that region in Uttar Pradesh and uh, its current chief minister, uh, Yogi Adiyanath. Swami Adityanand, um, you know, his, blood, his hands are bloody because we know his, uh, his, one of his youth gangs was very much involved in some of the communal violence that has occurred in UP. And he's openly uttering communalist kinds of sentiments uh, that have led to violence. So where does Kashmir now fit into uh, Modi's vision and the BJP's vision for India's future? Taking over Kashmir, a disputed territory in which the Indian leadership has never had the plebiscite or the election they were going to have so that people could follow their own preferences and elect to go with India, Pakistan, uh, that, that never happened. By taking it over, he, he is showing how strong he is. Both the Modi Shah leadership has demonstrated that they're capable of standing up to Pakistan and capable of standing up to Muslims. So it really is a return of, it's a Hindustan. It's the, really Kashmir should not 
or really all of Pakistan should be part of India, but we'll settle for Kashmir since that's all we got in 1947. Yeah. Uh, once Kashmir is brought under the thumb of the Indian government, and it remains to be seen whether that's really happened, because all the scholars I know who study Kashmir and who are in direct contact with people who are still living in Kashmir proper, where all the Muslims are, talk about it really being a, uh, an area under siege. Uh, I think it, it's not, it wouldn't be surprising uh, if there ever was a vote taken there that the overwhelming majority did support something that was not pro-India or for that matter, probably pro-Pakistan. I think over time, Kashmiris have become increasingly alienated from both India and Pakistan and would like to be left alone and to have their own autonomous political entity, which of course is very difficult to do because it's one of these landlocked states that's totally dependent on India and Pakistan for big chunks of its economy. But this is seen as win-win in the rest of India. So. What BJP did in Kashmir does not sit well with the few million people that inhabit Kashmir, the Muslim population at least, but wins a lot of votes, a lot of support in India. Most of the people I grew up with in India were middle or upper middle class now. The WhatsApp group that I belong to with them, they all send me messages all the time where they're hooting, hoot, hooting and hollering about how India has taken over Kashmir finally. It's the, it's the greatest realization yet of the Hindutva vision. So where do you see those aspirations playing out besides Kashmir under Modi's leadership? I think, I think steadily, steadily increase India's control over Kashmir. Right now it's a military control over Kashmir. I don't know whether it's ever going to be possible because the only way you can control a population of several million is by having almost 200,000, having 200,000 uh, Indian troops stationed there. There's somewhere in the range of 100 to 200,000 Indian military personnel stationed in Kashmir. So is this going to be the only real place that the Modi can reach out? Is there any other place, any other fronts? Yeah, they... I think the same thing is happening on the Northeast. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a different kind of situation because uh, the Muslim leadership of uh, Kashmir at the time of independence, at the time of 1947, were nationalists. I mean, there were Indian nationalists who, were, right. who fought alongside Nehru to win India's independence. Whereas in the Northeast, there were always separatist tendencies. This is also an area where large numbers, because of its geography, where large numbers of uh, refugees from um, uh, Bangladesh have migrated. And many of them, because they're refugees from Bangladesh, are Muslims. So India is very reluctant to grant them citizenship and is now sort of undergoing this very elaborate process uh, where they are going to determine on a case-by-case -case basis whether the people living in some of these northeastern states who lived there for two or three generations, whether or not they're going to be granted Indian citizenship. And it's really a Hindu-Muslim kind of issue. Is the BJP popular in those areas as well? They have surprisingly been making inroads into that area. 
I would imagine, given the the increasing tension between Muslims and Hindus, that tends to it seems like that's a, a situation ripe for their uh, political exploitation. Yeah, it's it's ironical too because it's in this part of India where, other than Kerala, there are also large numbers of Christians, because wherever there were tribal groups, um, Christian missionaries sort of used the avenue of kind of education to make conversions. But I think uh, the Christians there, as well as the Hindus and Buddhists who inhabit that, that part of Northeast India, uh, I think are somewhat resentful of the large Muslim presence. And it's partly about religion, but and it's partly about uh, linguistic and ethnic identity of these other people, because they're really Bengali speakers. Are there any other implications uh, that Hindutva as an ideology has, in your view, for India's place in the world and its foreign relations in general? Uh, as we saw with this Howdy Modi event in Houston, yes. large numbers of people in the Indian diaspora, not just in the United States, but all over the world, feel that they can hold their heads up high because India is a major power, a major economy, a major society, and Hinduism is a religion that has that stood up for itself. So there's great pride in being an Indian today because Modi stands on center stage alongside uh, the world's great leaders. As a Hindu and as a religious man. And is acknowledged as a world leader and a global leader. And as a spiritual one by his own people. Yes. Yes, and uh, he's been very successful in not only winning over the diaspora community, but winning over uh, all the parts of Indian state and society that used to be quite independent and autonomous, namely the press. So the press is basically, as as Trump said uh, enviously to Modi, how do you manage to control the press as well as you do? And indeed, Modi has really taken over uh, most of the media, what used to be a fiercely noisy and independent uh, media, is now kowtows to him. In what way did he take over? I think he's managed to persuade them of his, his point of view. He's managed to, uh, having the kind of mandates he believes he has, he's managed to push his people into not only political offices, but I think equally important, all the cultural and public offices. So taking over the system of higher education, taking over newspapers, uh, taking over public organizations, could bringing NGOs under control, you know, to the point where the Gates Foundation is heralding him as uh, a great statesman. So how, and we've talked before about how political use of religion can come back and bite you uh, yes. and you know there, that happens not just in india but all over the world and some leaders seem to pull it off better than others uh what is it about modi that has made his version of religious nationalism so so successful i think sometimes people um come along at the right time and so he rode a crest that was already in the making uh, in the making as a result of policies and actions uh, taken by 
other leaders. Yeah, he was part of the resurgence of the BJP and then really has just, he's been the leader that has shaped it, but he's by no means one man. Yes, yes. And a resurgence at a time when um, Indians wanted to see their country take its rightful place in the world. Do you see any, um, you know, chinks in the armor, any, any, you know, developing problems? I think the main one is, can he deliver economically? India's economy is uh, kind of in the doldrums right now. It hasn't done that well after a few mm. years of spectacular growth. It's kind of stalled. I mean, stalled in India means it's below 6%. You know, uh, countries would kill to have that kind of growth, right? Uh, you know, we're talking a little over 3% in the U.S. Uh, similarly, in the case of China, they're no longer doing 9%, you know, or 10%. So India is, is, is not doing as well as it has done. It's in the high fives. I, I think he needs it. If he, if he cannot deliver economically, he could lose that kind of popularity he currently enjoys. I mean, populists are always uh, subject to the review of their constituents on whether they've actually brought home the bacon. Yes, uh, at some or- point you have to deliver. And it can't just be the moonshot and uh, nuclear bombs or, you know, meeting world leaders and, and being best of chums with them. You know, you got to deliver the, I mean, in India, it's, it's uh, a lot of people um, look at such things as what is the price of onions? What is the price of potatoes? You know, what, is, what are inflation rates? Has the price of petrol or gas gone up? Things like that are, are very, very important. Crucial. The daily bread and butter. The day to day. Yes. Yes. Just like everywhere else. I just want to say thank you very much, Dr. Yang, for coming uh, on the program with me and voicing all these uh, very expert opinions. And I hope that it's been somewhat enjoyable for you as well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for inviting me to do this. It's been fun to kind of uh, piece together all these uh, different thoughts and different developments and try to make sense of it. If you'd like more background on religion and politics in India, please visit our website, jsis.washington.edu slash religiopolitics. You can find me, Randy Thompson, on Twitter, and you can find this show on your favorite podcast app. I hope you'll join us for our next episode on China's One Belt, One Road project. Like the old Silk Road, this massive infrastructure network runs mainly through countries with Muslim majorities. And we'll be discussing how China has engaged with Islamic actors abroad, especially while re-educating its own Muslim population.